sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen, how are you doing? I am doing okay. You know, before we get started, I wanted to mention something to everyone. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast on CastBox, and apparently a lot of folks are, I have some news news for you, at least potential news. Um, I uh, recently talked to actually the people who run CastBox. They contacted me because they're rolling out a live broadcast feature on their app, and they wanted Politics Guys to be one of the, the first uh, podcasts, I guess, that really gets into this. And it sounded like a pretty cool thing. It'd be kind of like uh, doing this without a net. I don't know if that might be uh, dangerous or <laughs> scary or fun. I don't know. But uh, also, it allows for apparently real-time listener interaction, and that sounded, you know, really cool to me. I, I at least wanted to try it out. It gives us a chance to do something new and maybe to reach a, a, a larger audience, and that would be great. So I plan on giving it a try at some point in the near future. And so what I want to know, folks, is if, you, if there's a day and a time that you might be most interested in hearing a live episode, that would obviously be super important because there's no point in doing a live episode if no one's you know <laughs> listening to it so if you have an idea about that preferences about that let me know you can you can email me at mike at politicsguys.com also when we do get a day and time set i will let uh, everyone know uh, uh, both on the show and through our social media accounts and of course that's facebook facebook.com slash politics guys page and twitter at politics guys all right uh, with that, Kristen, uh, you are you are running things today, so I will turn it over to you. Okay, well, I think we know where the first topic, where <laughs> we're going to go with this first topic. It's, it's pretty obvious. I know everybody's, you know, all in suspense, right? Um, so, you know, of course, this week was pretty much Mueller-Palooza. I hate to call it that. Oh, no. That's <laughs> exactly what was going on. Um, I, you know, most of the people who pay attention to the news at least have some inkling of what happened. Um, this week, all eyes were on Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, he held a press conference on Thursday to announce the release of the anticipated Mueller report. And of course, this report had redaction. Um, the report did not find evidence of a Trump 2016 campaign collusion link. But of course, as we've come to expect, this concluded absolutely nothing in the minds of everybody and only opened up a can of political worms that I'm pretty sure will dominate the news cycle for a very long time. So I think we should probably all start to pop our popcorn and get nice and comfortable because it's going to be a more of a bumpy ride. Um, so, you know, I guess, uh, I mean, obviously there, there's been a lot of lead up to this and we've talked a lot about it on the show. And I know you've talked a lot about, um, you know, the, the lead up with other co-hosts on the show. Um, and, you know, I guess that the most obvious question to you, Mike, is what do you think that, um, you know, of course, there was a subpoena um, that was um, pushed forward this week for a full and unredacted report. You know, what is that going to accomplish? What's your take on all this? Well, obviously, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this, reading about this, you know, spent time with the report itself. And, you know, I, I felt, I'm sure as you did, just information overload with everything. Yeah. And so yeah. 
it took me a lot of time and a lot of thinking to kind of wrap my head around this and sort of try to pull back and see the forest for the trees. And I hope that I've done that. And what I came away with after a lot of thinking about it is I really take away five main things from all this. So I thought if you were okay with it, we could maybe talk about those things and kind of go from there. Let's, let's do it. Okay. Number one, uh, the Russians made a concerted attempt to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton in 2016. It seems to me that the report is unequivocal in stating that. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes, I, I would. And I, and I actually think a lot of people on both sides would agree with that, that there was this concerted effort. And, um, you know, the, the, obviously the, the end of that, you know, is up for question whether or not Trump actually did collude. But, yeah. um, oh, yes, there was a there was a fishing attempt for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's at least maybe that's where the, the bipartisanship ends on it or partial bipartisanship. Yeah. But, you know, I think that going forward, that might actually be, you could argue, one of the most, if not the most important finding, because that affects potentially elections, no matter who's running or who's president. And that clearly is the, the thing we need to take care of, you know, uh, pretty, pretty quickly, I would say. And efforts have been made in that direction. And I think that's good. But obviously, you know, the Russians and our other, other hostile foreign powers are working to kind of undermine whatever we do. And I think we need to be very vigilant on that, on that ground. Mm hmm. So, okay, that was my first thing. My second thing, people in the Trump campaign were receptive to Russian advances and they didn't report those advances as I would argue, and I think most people would argue they, they should have. Now, that may be because, and the report seems to suggest that, they were too inexperienced to realize they were potentially breaking the law. I mean, the report actually says that at one point. They didn't necessarily know what they were doing was potentially illegal. Or they might have just been, I don't know, too incompetent to pull together a decent criminal conspiracy, um, you know. But, but, but it seems to me that the, the one thing the report is clear about is that not only were there these advances, but there were people in the Trump campaign who were interested, who were willing to talk about these things. And they also didn't report about this, these advances to the FBI or other authorities. Would you, uh, would you agree with me on that? I I would agree with you. I, I, um, you know, I've had a lot of discussions lately. For some reason, I feel like a lot of uh, suspicion and doubt has fallen on Paul Manafort. Um, and there have been, you know, so many questions about whether or not he knew what he was doing. Was he just like you mentioned, incompetent? Was he just inexperienced? I mean, he's not an inexperienced you know, person when it comes to these matters. But I think, um, you know, sort of a component that a lot of people on both sides forget is that Paul Manafort had, you know, he had some deeply sort of deeply rooted personal um, uh, ties to, you know, Russian oligarchs and, and things like that. He had he had some bones to pick with some of the people who were involved with this collusion effort. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe Maybe not. I think, you know, if they did, if I could say this, you know, if there were people that deserve to be picked off, um, they probably picked off the right people. And mostly I mean Manafort. Right. Right. Yeah. Manafort is, well, yeah. deserving of being picked off for, for a number of reasons. Yeah. But yeah, oh, I would, would agree. I would agree. Yeah. OK, so my third point uh, is that there's not enough evidence to make a case for criminal conspiracy. And now partly and this is what a lot of my friends on the left point out is partly this may be because some people 
seem to have destroyed incriminating evidence and other people wouldn't talk or couldn't be reached and so forth. Now, that can be that's true often a, a lot of times in investigations. Uh, and, and secondly, no collusion, no collusion isn't actually a thing. And Mueller right. made a point of saying no collusion isn't a thing. It's not a real legal term. It's not a term of art. And so it was bizarre to me that the attorney general, who certainly understands legal terms and legal terminology, repeatedly mentioned the no collusion thing uh, during, his, during his press conference on Thursday. And, and you know, I, this is maybe a side note, but, but I think that the attorney general did himself no favors in either A, releasing his summary, or B, having the press conference. It would have made, to me, so much of a smarter move to just say, I'm not going to try to characterize this. I'm just going to release it as soon as I can. And that would have that would have been, I think, a lot better. I mean, the media would have been upset about it and so forth. But I just don't get why he, you know, well, I guess he did this, you could argue, because he wanted to pre-spin the results. And I think maybe so. But I think that was a really bad move. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because um, I, I have a lot of respect for Trey Gowdy. And um, he actually said something somewhat similar um, this week that he thought that, you know, there, he had a lot of questions about releasing the report in general, which is a whole other, you know, issue, whether or not it moved a needle or whether or not it, you know, resolved anything, you know, probably not. And I, and I agree with him there. But, um, you know, I, I, he also raised some questions as to why he released his version of the report in, in advance, you know, whether or not he thought, you know, was this a, an attempt to um, sort of quell people quickly and then they would have time to figure out what to do next? You know, was it a delay? Was it, you know, what what exactly was it? And I would agree. I, I think probably and, and what I assumed would happen is that the report would just be released. And um, and I assumed it would be with redactions, which I, I understand the, the legal reasons for the redactions. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I definitely thought now that the, the press conference, I think, was very telling. Of course, um, you know, I, I've had uh, my previous position was with a, a big media company and I worked in um, television media and I know, you know, how contentious those press conferences can be. And I thought it was very revealing, but beyond that, it, you know, nothing was really proven. And I figured that people like Nadler, um, you know, some of the other folks in Congress would be, you know, pushing for an unredacted report, you know, so uh, it, just to release, it would have been quicker, easier. It would have ripped the bandaid off. Yeah. And well, and, and to me, it just seemed politically toned up to do what he did because everyone knew from the beginning that this would change nobody's mind. Right. I mean, that seemed to be a pretty, pretty clear. And so even if he's trying to pre-spin these results, he had to know that this wouldn't have the effect that he wanted it to have. The only effect it could possibly have, well, two things, number one, it would damage his credibility and legitimacy, which it has. And two, it can maybe ingratiate him a little more with the president, but, I don't know how much that's necessarily worth. So it just seemed to me to be a bad move all the way around. Yeah, I I don't think he should have released his version of the report, Um, you know, his summary. um, I think he should have just released that. I, I, you know, the the redacted report, I think, should have just been released. And it should have just, you know, it should have been with, you know, not a lot of hoopla just released. Of course, it would have garnered the attention it deserves. Yeah, I'm with you there. Okay, so. Here's my fourth point that I take away from all this. There's a lot more evidence to support an obstruction charge than there is for uh, anything else, basically for uh, not collusion, but uh, coordination, I think is, is, the, is the term. Uh, 
And, and, you know, it, it seemed to me in reading the report and the various analyses of it that the reason why uh, Robert Mueller didn't reach a conclusion is in large part because of the Department of Justice's practice of not indicting a sitting president. And there at least was an indication that uh, that Mueller was saying, OK, I'm not going to reach a conclusion on that. That's kind of beyond my purview. So here's the evidence. And if Congress wants to act on this, they certainly can. And, and that's, but that's their call, not my call. And I mean, Mueller made a point of specifically saying that President Trump was not exonerated on obstruction charges, saying that if he were, he would say so in the report and he could not say that. And in fact, there are multiple times when the president clearly tried to thwart or affect the investigation. And it seems like, based on the report, he had enough people around him who either ignored his illegal orders, refused to follow them, or talked him out of them, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that clearly this is not news, that he lies like no president we've ever seen, maybe ever. But, I mean, that, that's sort of what I took away on the obstruction issue. What do you think? Well, you know, I think... Today, in particular, for some reason, and this, of course, we're you know recording this on on Saturday, but yesterday and today, I've seen a lot of this. I, I feel like people um, in Washington are finally finishing reading through this clunky yeah. report. You know, most of us have uh, you know nine to five jobs or you know families, whatever other things we're doing, and so you know it's been difficult. Um, but I think people are finally finishing it, and I you know I think it it falls right along party lines. I think people who are you know never Trumpers, people who have been against the president, you know, from the beginning, they're going to, I hate to say it, but they're going to see what, what they want to see. And that is evidence of obstruction and people who are supporting the president are going to say, you know, no collusion. Now, you know, if, if my masters of public admin has taught me anything, it's that oftentimes when it comes to these sort of clunky reports and these debates, you know, these debates that turn political, um, you know, it's really very murky. Um, is it, could there be evidence Maybe, but you know, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to Trey Gowdy on this. He he said, and I and I totally agree with him. If there's evidence, then let's 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 go with it. Let's move forward and let's try to get beyond this. And you know, I, I think I'm a little less optimistic than Trey Gowdy, though. I don't know that we will get beyond this. But um, you know, if there is something there, um, you know, I guess I I probably don't see it as much as you do. But it, but if there is something there, we should put it. We should put the cards on the table and just move forward with it. And I think that's kind of where I yeah. stand right. Now. Well, I, and that leads me right into my final point: is that it seems to me uh, that I, and we did not pre-rehearse this. That just worked out really well. Um, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> but but my final point is that it seems to me that there's definitely not enough here for impeachment and removal, and maybe not even. Uh, enough for a House majority for impeachment in a House that's controlled by Democrats. Now, I, I will, I will kind, of, kind of pull back on this a little bit and say that that could change because, of course, there are going to be hearings on this and more people are going to be testifying. But I don't think that that's going to change. And, and I think in part because there's a, there's a concerted effort by the kind of more moderate Democratic leadership to kind of make this a drip, drip, drip sort of thing without taking it up to the level of impeachment. So to kind of keep this in voters' consciousness, but not the fight a battle they know that they're not going to be able to win because the president isn't going to be removed. And that could be seen as going to too much of an extreme and that could sort of rile up 
even more the president's base and maybe even some undecided undecided voters, though to me now the idea of anyone who's going to vote in 2020 being an undecided voter kind of blows my mind a little bit, but uh, you know. So that's kind of that's kind of how I see this playing out. There are going to be more hearings, more air quote revelations and so forth, but probably not a whole lot. And the smart Democratic move is to just kind of keep this at a low, low boil without moving it to impeachment. Though, of course, a number of Democrats are calling for impeachment proceedings to begin. I believe Elizabeth Warren is probably the highest profile uh, a person who's doing that, though I should point out that. It's easier for a senator to say that because it's not their chamber that starts off the whole thing, essentially. So. Right. right. And they're stuck there for a while, too. Yeah. A little while longer. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not more as worried about re-election. Yeah, I, um, I, I've had this conversation a couple times um, over, the, over the past couple of days since the, you know, the report, the redacted report was released. And, you know, the point I always come back to is I, I personally, as a Republican, I can't stand uh you know, Speaker Pelosi's policies per se. You know, I don't, I always say I, I can't stand their policies. I don't know how they are as a, as a person. Um, you know, I stop short sure. of saying I don't like her, but, you know, I, I, I have respect for her in one way, believe it or not. And that is, I think she's incredibly politically savvy. I mean, this woman has, um, you know, she's, she's, seen a lot in her, you know, in her very long and, and pretty distinguished political career. And if nothing else, she's very strategic. And I feel pretty confident in saying that Nancy Pelosi would never get behind something like this. And she's made that very clear. She would never get behind a move to impeach the president. And, it, you know, I, she gets a lot of heat from Democrats. I have um, some, you know, more progressive Democrat friends who, when I say something like that, when they hear something like that, they get very, very upset. And I'm like, you know, this, but think about where she's coming from. And I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody like Nancy Pelosi. She's being smart about this. She knows it's a losing issue. And so just like what you said there, you know, Democrats will use this as a 2020 issue, whether or not there's going to be evidence of obstruction, you know, whether or not, there, you know, it could be a little, it could be, you know, more than we think it could be nothing. But, um, you know, they're going to try to use that. And I think that's just, you know, if, if I was to put the shoe on the other foot, that that would be the smart thing to do. And I think she's playing it very safe. And I think that, you know, people like Elizabeth Warren are maybe, um, you know, they're getting a lot of attention and they're attracting more progressive, you know, base. You know, they're, they're definitely playing to that base. But, you know, all those people who are Democrats and, and maybe not as politically savvy and maybe not as progressive. And there are a lot of people like that. You know, they're going to be looking to people like Nancy Pelosi for, um, you know, to, to understand what's going on. So I do understand what she's doing, even though, you know, I don't agree with her 99% yeah. of the time. This is a smart move on her part. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, there was a, we had an interesting back and forth with uh, a few folks actually on the Facebook group about this, because that was the point I made, you know, and <laughs> there were a number of folks, I mean, uh, on the left, Left, left of me, probably, who said, yeah, but we, if we just let this go, what does this say about us? I mean, this is, uh, if we just basically make a political calculation and say we're not going to do the right thing by not choosing not to go after a guy who we believe is unfit for the office and has committed crimes, aren't we, aren't we essentially, you know, abandoning our, our, our ethics, our ethical, our, our moral responsibility I get that argument. I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I have to come back to the pragmatic thought of, as a liberal, I feel that Donald Trump is doing incredible harm to the country, 
as president of the United States and given potentially four more years, he could do all so much more harm to the United States. And I also feel that in many other ways, he's doing so much harm to just democratic norms in general beyond the whole Russia thing. And so when I weigh that, you know, I, that, that just is to me so much more of a factor. And so I'm not unsympathetic to that view, but I, I just can't weighing both those things. I, you know, I say, yes, I believe that if this, if the obstruction thing, if it were not the president and if it were, you know, an impartial jury that were hearing this, they'd say they convict him of obstruction based on what I know, which is obviously, you know, incomplete, but that's not the case. And we have to weigh these things. And so, you know, that's kind of the bigger kind of issue that I sometimes have with the, with my friends who are to the left of me saying that I, I mean, I'm much more of a pragmatist incrementalist and so forth, but I understand where they're coming from. on that. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm listening to you, to you talk and, um, you know, obviously I have a lot of respect for you and I think you're, you know, a very reasonable and, and, and rational person. Um, and you know, I, I, I've had conversations on a Thursday night, I had some friends over and you know, we were talking about it and I was, you know, I was a Republican amid Democrats in my own home, you know, and we were talking about this. Um, and, you know, mo- most of my friends, you know, weren't as aware of what was going on. But one of my friends was just it seemed like she was just putting up walls, um, you know, whenever I would say something. But what about this? But what about this? And there was a wall. And I think it I think a lot of just sort of the mentality on the right um, with people like me who tend to be more, I guess, I guess I could say uh, more um, like he- thinking with the head rather than the heart type Republicans is, um, you know, whether or not. Um, this is just a, an effort from never Trumpers and people on the left who who hate Trump and won't vote for him. You know, whether this is just an effort to block whatever chances he has of, of getting reelected, which, you know, I would understand. But also whether or not this is just, you know, um, escalating that that emotion. I feel like a lot of this is driven by emotion from the progressive left. And, um, you know, I I feel like a lot of people are really sort of just excited about the prospect of trying to impeach a president and trying to find evidence of obstruction. It's almost like people I I watch, you know, MSNBC and I watch CNN and I see these pundits who are like frothing at the mouth to try to find this evidence. I think on the right, I in turn, you know, am disturbed by that mentality, this sort of progressive um, this, this, where, where is that drive coming from? Is it just hatred of Trump? You know, is it, is it pure emotion? Where are you? Are, is it, is it anger? I really don't know. And I'm not saying that, you know, in a, in a sense to, um, you know, make anybody feel bad. It's just, these are questions that are coming up on the right. Where is that coming yeah. from? And I think that, that is extremely harmful for, you know, our democratic ideals and, and just the, the fabric that unites us as a country. So, you know, I, and I, and I was asking these questions and at one point I said to her, I said, you know, you know, let's say Donald Trump did something really great, uh, you know, something you really agreed with. And I gave her a couple of examples of things that I thought she would agree with. Would you still hate him? And she said, yep. And I, and I thought, you know, I think that that's the crux at the crux of it. So, you know, and I could say the same thing for people on the right who refuse to talk to Democrats and refuse to, to, discuss anything with them or be friends with them. And, you know, it just, I find that very disturbing. Yeah. I, I'm in a a weird position on this because I not only very vividly, well, maybe not very vividly, but I I not only remember the Clinton impeachment where obviously the parties were reversed on this thing, 
But also, I was reversed because back then I was a conservative um, and, and a pretty pretty staunch conservative. And so it's it's fascinating to me to see this from both angles because I saw the exact and this was in a you know a considerably less polarized uh, and angry era before really the internet was a bigger thing before social media. You know, yeah. Jake, no social media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah. I saw the exact same sort of thing and I felt some of it. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right about the, the emotions that are driving this much more than the reason. And I think the question that tends to get lost in here that, that we should, everyone should be thinking about is what's best for the country? And yeah. Amen. That, that gets lost into, you know, what would make me feel best right now to punish this evil man? Well, okay, maybe, but how does that help, say, thousands or, or, or millions of people in the country, you know, illegally or unda- in an undocumented way? I mean, that's one issue. I That's a big concern to me as, you know, someone on the left. And I say, well, I think most of the Democratic candidates would do a lot better job of dealing with that than, say, Donald Trump. And, you know, you can do the same thing on the right, certainly. Yeah, I yeah, I think that 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 question is just completely lost. And again, we I feel like we come back to it whenever we do the show, you know, just sort of like this, the fabric of what once united us has. I mean, obviously, it was very much a chasm during, you know, the the, the whole Clinton impeachment, you know, debacle. But now it's just so it's 10 times worse. And and I think social media, I think that the media generally has a lot to do with that. But the, another question we should be asking, and, and I and I I tend to ask people on the right and left this equally as then what? You know, you want this, you want this now. Like you said, there's this immediate gratification. Okay, so you find evidence of something. You've dug something up. Then what? You know, and I think that's something people aren't thinking about. Um, you know, if Donald Trump, and I've, and I've said this before on the show, but if Donald Trump is removed, which is, you know, very, very unlikely to happen at this point, um, you know, then you have Mike Pence. And and a lot of people, on, especially on the left, fear Mike Pence more than they fear Donald Trump. And then what? Yeah. You know, and on the right, it's, it's a similar conversation that we need to be having. Yeah, no, I, I certainly fear Mike Pence a lot more than <laughs> Donald Trump. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I think that's, you know, to that point, again, that there's this, it's not political necessarily, but there's this deep-seated feeling of, you know, uh, anger at injustice when we see somebody who is, you know, we feel is done wrong things, getting away from it, whether it has a, you know, religious connotation as often it does a lot on the right, maybe more so, or kind of a, I hate the term, but a social justice kind of connotation that we see a lot more on the left. I mean, that's a primary human drive, I think, to see wrongdoers, evildoers punished. And so, you know, that's a big part of it. And I get that. I mean, I think that Donald Trump is a horrific human being. And he deserves all kinds of punishment, you know, but but sometimes you got to let that go for the greater good. And that that's kind of how I that's kind of how I see that. Right. Yeah. I, I Yeah. And, and I think, you know, moving forward, um, you know, I think it's going to be. Oh, I, I think that's going to be the question is now what and yep. what can we yep. do to come together? I hate to sound like a you know broken record on this, and I hate to be so pessimistic, but you know, can we ever repair this yeah. uh, with or without Trump? I mean, even if we were, let's say, you know, if he gets reelected, which I know is your worst nightmare, or if he gets impeached, which is my worst nightmare, it's it's like you know, either way, you know, the you know, Democrats win, Republicans lose, Republicans win, Democrats lose, but really, the country loses. Yeah. because we've lost something in this whole process. And I, and I just, oh, I just, I feel like, I feel like, you know, I just keep, you know, coming back to it. Hey, 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 you know, circling back to this mm-hmm. in conversations. And I feel like so many people don't get it. No. Yeah. I, 
I, yeah. I totally agree. Now, I know I have other things to cover, but before we move on from this, I wanted to mention uh, Trey's take on this because I asked I asked uh, folks, you know, other folks uh, who do the show what they thought about Trey was able to get back to get back to us before. And I'm sure, like you said, this is not a, a story that's ended. So we'll hear from uh, everyone else on this. But Trey had a really kind of interesting kind of two-level approach to this. And that first level, he kind of echoed a lot of the stuff that both of us have been saying about what he took away from the report itself. But then he took it, took it up to a second level. And he argued that the bigger problem, he thinks, is that we vested too much power in the presidency and that Congress has essentially given up its role as a check and given the power, given greater power to the president in the name of efficiency. And that he said flat out, the office of the presidency itself is broken. And I thought that was a, a really interesting take and something that we really haven't seen because everyone's been so focused on the kind of granular part of it. But I think there's, there's really something to that argument that, you know, we, we have some of these issues of why you know, the president's in a unique position to obstruct justice because he has all this power. And Congress has, in fact, in so many ways, basically just said to the executive branch, well, you deal with this. And I, I think Trey raises some really important points here. Yeah, I, you know, during Obama's presidency, I think that this was a, a rallying cry you heard a lot on the right. And I was one yeah. of the people to make that rallying cry, which is we've put too much, you know, we put too much emphasis on the presidency. The president has too much control, so many executive orders. And, you know, so Trump, gets in and and you see people on the right backing down and people on the left you know um you know kind of moving in a different direction i think it really depends on who's president and who you're in favor of and whether or not your party is in power and whether or not your president is part of this you know your shared beliefs your party um you know it and, and and again like i think that that the issue of the presidency being broken is a is part of a larger issue, which is, you know, we are broken. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great point because I think the reason, a big reason why this system worked better, why there were more checks on the presidency in the past is because we weren't as polarized by party. And so therefore you had more conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans willing to kind of do the job to put that check on a president of their own party to push back because ideologically they were a little bit different. But now we see an awful lot less of it. And now it's just more two teams in a death match, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So on, on that, on that happy note, I guess maybe, maybe we need to, we need to move on death match, right. but, uh, but yeah, he said not a dead story for sure. No. So, um, so the next thing that, that we really wanted to discuss was something, it was a story that was, um, kind of quickly pushed out of the news cycle because it's something that happened earlier this week and it made a little, you know, there were some some flashes of, of insight and then this mania surrounding the Mueller report release kind of took over and, and everybody focused on that. But uh, this past Tuesday night, um, President Trump informed the Senate that he would be vetoing a resolution that was believed by Many people, many people thought that um, this would um, end U.S. support for the Saudi-led military intervention against um, the rebels in Yemen. And of course, the the bigger issue here is a policy issue, as it always 
almost always is. Um, and that is over the War Powers Act. And the resolution was this huge debate that lasted years in Congress. And a statement challenged, the president's statement challenged this War Power Act. President Trump said that the use of this act didn't apply because U.S. military forces were not directly engaged in Yemen at any significant level. And of course, he also drew comparisons to other presidents before him, saying they exercised similar power and that he believed that the veto was in the best interest of the safety of our troops. And it was criticized by people on both sides, which I think is worth noting. Um, Democrats, of course, clashed with the president, uh, saying that it was pretty authoritarian um, and that, uh, you know, at this bipartisan resolution had been accomplished. They, they were a little offended by, it, you know, his, his comments. So um, I don't know. Mike, what do you think? Do you think Trump, I think I know what you're going to say, but do you think that President Trump is being authoritarian and, you know, abusing power? Or do you think he's working on behalf of the American people and trying to protect the troops? Is there something more to this? Well, Agus, first, the first thing I think is that, you know, I, I ended my last, uh, our, our, my comment on the last story by saying, you know, things look hopeless, but this is in a way, at least a little bit of a sign of hope. This is, you know, the, the Congress pushing back, including, you know, a Republican Senate pushing back against the president. Now, granted, this was mostly a partisan vote. The resolution only got 16 Republican votes in the House and seven in the Senate. But still, that's not nothing in today's climate. Um, you know, this is a this is a really difficult issue. Uh, I look back and as you did, obviously, to the, the 1973 War Powers Resolution and the relevant text in it says, at any time that the United States armed forces are engaged in hostilities outside the territory of the United States, its possessions and territories, without a declaration of war or specific statutory authorization, such forces shall be removed by the president if Congress so directs. And so on one reading, you'd say, well, that sounds like U.S. forces in Yemen. But then there's that phrase, as you pointed out uh, in, in the president's message, engaged in hostility. Does that mean directly fighting? Uh, does that mean providing logistical support, which is what we're doing? You know, we're not we're not refueling their planes anymore, which is more direct. We stopped doing that in late 2018. So, but clearly, there's no statutory authorization for anything direct. And then, to me, the other issue is that well, the War Powers Resolution itself might be an unconstitutional legislative veto. You know, because it violates arguably the presentment clause of the Constitution because it essentially allows Congress to make law by bypassing the president in the legislative process. So it's a pretty big muddle, I think, from a constitutional standpoint. The courts never ruled on it. And it, there's even a question as to whether Congress would have standing to challenge, you know, this. And I don't necessarily think it's going to go anywhere. But as to the is the president being too authoritarian? Well, you know, it seems to me that Congress does have a role and the framers, if you're a, if you believe in kind of original intent of the framers, that the framers did intend for Congress to be the ones to have that role in deciding the very grave decision of whether the United States gets involved in hostilities abroad. And I feel like the War Powers Resolution is a way to kind of recognize that sometimes if there's an attack or an imminent danger, Yes, the president should have the ability to act, but ultimately in keeping with the intent of the framers, which I think was wise, saying that, no, we need to have a real strong consensus before we send our troops, our people in harm's way to fight and potentially die and, and get involved in, you know, other also killing other people. And so 
I agree with Congress on this, and I think the president should uh, should listen to Congress on this. <laughs> I figured you would say something yeah. like that. Um, no, I I um I, I find this whole issue really fascinating because it it immediately I started thinking about a while back, you know, with the whole flap going on over tr- pulling the troops out of Syria. I just I started thinking about that. I started thinking about who were the loud voices in the room, you know, when that was happening. We heard so much from people like Rand Paul. Um, and then we heard a lot of, you know, there, there was obviously a lot of very loud voices on the left. And it's funny because with this issue, as quickly as it was in the news, and it, I wish it had stuck around longer because there were some great conversations going on. But I want to, I really want to draw attention to that um, because I, I do think that um, I did understand the president's logic, his policy argument and his constitutional argument for why he made the statement he did. Um, I, I could follow it. But I think, you know, a lot of times when these resolutions, when these acts are drafted, these resolutions are drafted. I mean, you know, it's the same thing in any court. You know, a good judge will will allow for a lot of vagueness and discretion. And I think, you know, a lot of these uh, resolutions were designed that way. There was a lot of vagueness and, and there was a lot of discretion. And so, you know, again, this is not the end we're going to we're not going to see an end to this anytime soon. But I, I really thought it was interesting that the same voices you saw piping up about everything going on in, with pulling the troops out of Syria were the same voices here, but sort of reversed. Yeah. And, um, and I just found that so interesting as, you know, a Republican who, you know, kind of I dip my toe into the libertarian with the into the libertarian waters, you know, every now and then. And I, and I really I love Rand Paul. He's one of my favorite people in Washington. But, um, you know, I had some questions. I understood the president's logic here. Um, his statement made sense to me. But at the same time, you know, I, I understand um, that there's this unique opportunity in it. And it comes about, you know, once in a blue moon, but for libertarians and Democrats to unite, albeit for completely different reasons. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that's, that was lost because this was so quickly in and out of the news cycle. But I, I just think it's very interesting from a purely like political theater perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, this, this all this, again, goes back to Trey's point about too much power being vested in the president. And ultimately, what I'd love to see is essentially something that's like the war powers, uh, uh, war powers resolution, basically being made an amendment to the Constitution, so that it would be entirely clear. Now I know that's only going to happen in my wildest fever dreams and so forth, but uh, but you know I feel that just like the framers did, uh, that Congress is supposed to be the first branch, and I think they gave Congress the power to declare war. I think I understand what their intent was there. I think it was pretty clear. And I think over time we've gone to war so often without declaring war. And I think that should stop. And so that, that's what I would like to see my, my big, my big dream on that anyway. That's your big dream. My big well, dream. Yeah. You'll see it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So should we move on to the next? Yeah, topic let's first? do that. Yeah, I think, yeah, we got to keep it moving along because this next one, um, you know, we're going to circle back to the man of the hour. Attorney General Bill Barr. Um, yeah, he's, he, he is definitely, you know, the person of the week this week, I guess you could say. Um, he uh, ruled this week that asylum seekers who face removal and show that they have a credible fear of returning to their country of origin are not eligible for a bonded release. And you can only imagine how this went over with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, <laughs> what this would mean is that um, these individuals would have to stay detained while their cases um, here in the U.S. are pending. And this is significant, and I, and I think this caught a lot of attention first, because this was Barr's very first immigration-related ruling 
since he was confirmed as the new U.S. Attorney General pretty recently. So, you know, of course, as I'm sure we all predicted, Democrats see this as um, just another crackdown at the border. And, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of negative media coverage about it, but Republicans see this as a good thing. Um, and, and I think we could probably, most of us would agree that all of us see see this as uh, an effective campaign rallying cry for the upcoming 2020 elections. And I also wanted to note, too, that uh, this ruling does not apply to asylum-seeking families um, because they can't be held longer than 20 days, generally speaking. And this also doesn't apply to unaccompanied minors because I feel like there have been a lot of uh, retractions in the media, um, you know, for people pointing out families and children. And so this would not apply to them. This would apply to um, adults. So right. uh, what's your take, Mike? <laughs> well, also, uh, notably, it doesn't apply to people who seek asylum at any of the authorized ports of entry. And the reason why the attorney general couldn't do that is because I believe there was a, a recent federal court ruling saying that they had to be given the opportunity to to seek bail. So, I mean, this could potentially, though, affect thousands of people. And I get the logic. And to a certain extent, believe it or not, Kristen, I actually agree with the logic, because it seems to me that, and, and well, tell me if I'm right here, but it seems to me that the argument is we're not trying to be harsh on these immigrants because we don't like brown people, essentially. Now, there are some on the left who believe that to be the case, and yeah. that's another issue. But the argument is that if people know that it's they're just not going to be essentially automatically entered into the country for potentially years at a time, because now we have an immigration backlog of, I believe, more than a million cases or something at this point, that the word's going to get back and people are going to say, hey, if you go to the border, you're actually going to be put in detention, put in jail, in effect, for maybe an end for it could be years until your case is heard, and that will stem the tide. Is that is that more or less what you think the logic is on, on bars and, and on the I, right I part? Do, I, I do think that that's the logic. I, I saw this. I was going to say that that I see this as more of a um, logistical thing more than anything else. Trying to, like you said, sort of stop the, the flow. Um, I mean, obviously, you can keep better track of people when they're detained. I'm not saying that that's, a, you know, the, the best, you know, the, the most effective human rights response. But what I'm saying is that I thought that this decision was something that was functional and logistical. Yeah. And I know, you know, dem especially progressive Democrats aren't going to like to hear that. But I do think that that was it. And I don't think that there was a motivation of racism behind it. Well, you know, I agree with the fact that Barr certainly understands the logistical difficulties of this, which is one of the, re the reasons he stated for giving it 90 days to go into effect, if it does, because, of course, there are lawsuits, but you would expect that. But, uh, you know, this is going to put a great strain on a, a Department of Homeland Security that's already at the breaking point because there will need to be more facilities for this. But to me, the problem, if, if you accept that logic, let's say, and, and the logic, as I kind of uh, illustrated or expressed beforehand, that we need to stop the flow. Now, there are some folks like Trey, who, you know, much more libertarian than you or I, certainly, would say maybe not open borders, but we should let more of these, these folks in. Um, but putting that aside, okay, and I think there's a good argument to be made for that, but putting that aside, even if you say, well, we want to stop this flow or slow this flow, it seems to me that there are two main reasons for this massive flow from 
Central America. Number one, conditions in their countries are awful, and they're fleeing those conditions. Number two, very much related to it, they know that if they can get into the United States, they can almost certainly get jobs that are going to improve their lot, and they'll be able to send money back to their families, uh, potentially, and so forth. So they'll have a better life. Would you, would you agree with me on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so given that, it seems to me that a smart policy would focus on two things. Number one, it would focus on making it a lot harder for people to get jobs when they get into the country illegal. That would mean, at a minimum, it would mean making E-Verify mandatory in all countries. And, and E-Verify is the process where, you know, at, for folks who don't know, is where employees go into the system and they check people to make sure that they are actually legally in the country. If not, then they, they can't employ them. Now, there are only eight states that require E-Verify and for, for all or most employers, and only two border states that do. That's Florida and Texas. That's that to me is is nuts. And in addition to that, we need way more rigorous inspection of the industries where undocumented workers tend to find their employment and way tougher penalties for hiring undocumented workers. Because if you do that, this takes care of the problem because businesses are hiring these folks. And the reason we're not doing that, I argue, is that businesses like cheap labor that can be intimidated. Because if you look at, for instance, in the seasonal agricultural industry, there are horrific abuses that go, labor abuses that go on because employers know they can get away with it, especially with people who are in the country without documentation. But of course, you know, and so that to me would be the start of a smart policy, but we're not seeing any of that. I mean, there are some folks on the right who are saying, yes, more E-Verify, but there are actually a lot of folks on the left who, are, who have problems with it. But I would love to see mandatory 50-state E-Verify and crack down on employers who hire undocumented workers. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, so I live in South Florida and this is something, this is, I remember when, when the whole E-Verify debate was raging and, um, I, I know that I actually, you know, I'll go out on a limb and say, I know people who hire, uh, undocumented immigrants, um, here in the state of Florida. And of course it's, it's not so much in South Florida as much as it's in central Florida. There's obviously a lot of agriculture, um, you know, same thing in Texas, same thing in, in a lot of these border states. And I think that this is, you know, you, you, you bring this up and I think it's a, it's a decent opportunity for, for two sides to come together and agree that the problem is that we're being really hypocritical. Yeah. Um, same people who out of one side of their mouth say, you know, we don't want, you know, we're obviously overburdened and, you know, which is my argument, we're overburdened and, you know, we can't control the flow. We have no idea where these people go. We'd like to be able to let them in, but we just, it, we're, logistically, it's impossible for us right now. And we're sort of way past our capacity. A lot of these people out of the other side of their mouth will say like, well, you know, I'm still going to hire these people because I can get them cheaply. You know, I know that they'll work. Um, I, you know, I obviously don't have to you know, I, I can cut corners when it comes to things like providing insurance and, you know, they don't have to pay taxes. Maybe they'll work harder for me. I know people, I actually know people who have made these arguments before to me and I find it so hypocritical. And I think that this is a good opportunity because again, like you said, there are people on the right and on the left who have these hypocritical views. And if we could just like kind of come together and, and stop the, stop the bleeding by addressing this from a labor perspective, I think that would be very, very smart. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't see a whole lot of 
likelihood of that happening, but I but I do agree that at least we could envision some sort of a bipartisan coalition around around this issue. Um, so here's the second part uh, of the. So if I if the problem is that people are getting getting jobs who shouldn't be because employers are illegally hiring them, and I said the other part is that conditions in their countries are so bad. Well, I mean President Trump has talked about cutting aid to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and in fact. I looked up the, from U.S. Uh, U.S. Agency for International Development the aid figures. In 2017, Guatemala uh, we received 257 million dollars in U.S. aid. That was down to 146 in million in 2018. It's projected to be only 24 million in 2019. Honduras is the same way. 181 million down to 110, down to 49 million projected. El Salvador 118 million pre. Pre-Trump down to 82 million, projected this year down to just 18 million. So it seems to me that that's exactly the opposite of what you want to do. If these countries are, you know, not falling apart is too is too strong, but are, are facing really real difficulties, the way to help out is not to crack down even more, but is to help give them the resources so that you know people may be less likely to leave to help you know to help them with enforcing rule of law and policing and strong property rights and all that sort of stuff that, that we know are the foundation for good and prosperous uh, economies and, and happier people in many cases. So I think the administration is going in exactly the wrong, uh, wrong direction. On this. Well, you know, I, I think that um, I, I returned to um, my, I spent a summer actually studying abroad in Cuba when I was in college, and this was back in 2003. And I remember um, that was the first time where I ever thought to myself, you know, I have this money, you know, things were very inexpensive there. I have these American dollars. And I have to wonder, um, you know, I'm obviously spending money on the black market. I, you know, when I was there, um, but where is this money going? Um, you know, the, the people are living in abject poverty. And, you know, I, I would apply the same logic to what's going on in Central America, which is if we give m money to these countries, I would I would want to know where that money was going. Is it going to helping the people? Because I agree with you that these people need a lot of help. I mean, I know I, obviously where I live, there are a lot of um, Cuban um, immigrants. There are a lot of a lot of refugees from Venezuela where I live. Actually, the community where I live is, I think, the highest or second highest Venezuelan population in the country. But, um, you know, I know a lot of these people. And I think that, that that's a question, you know, once we once we give this money, where does it go? And I think probably you know, from the right, a, a better approach would be to incentivize or enable um, these, um, you know, NGOs, nonprofits to go in and try to make a difference. Because I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, maybe they, they would have better control over, you know, the, what was going on in these countries, and maybe they could take a more grassroots approach to helping the people. Um, but I, 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 so in that sense, I disagree with you that, that, you know, upping the ante with giving them money is, would be effective. Rather, I would like to see nonprofits get more involved with that. Now, how you go about doing that, I don't know. That's a whole other, yeah. you know, ball of ball sure. of wax. Yeah, I, I get that argument from at least from a from the right perspective. Now, as for myself, were, were I in President Trump's shoes, I think I would announce, you know, like a uh, like a five billion dollar aid package to these countries. It, well, it costs a lot less than a wall, I would argue, and it helps you know make us make us friends as opposed to enemies. And so, but that's a, a whole different issue. But there. There is one thing I wanted to to get into with you on this because, of course, there's President Trump's now famous 
uh, quote about, well, the country's full. Just tell people that we're full. And of course, that's an eye-rollingly silly comment on one in one sense. But it seems to me that you can make an argument exactly the opposite, that with, with unemployment at record lows, pretty much people who want jobs can get jobs almost, you know, in, in many cases, obviously, there are, there are people who can't get jobs. And we could look at unemployment among, you know, certain groups and so forth. But clearly, it's a it's about as good as it's ever been in terms of people being able to get jobs. And so a lot of folks would say, well, no, actually, we have plenty of land and opportunity and so forth. And so if people can come in and get jobs, hey, the more the merrier, welcome in. I'm not necessarily saying open borders. I'm, I'm with the president, I believe I said that, on keeping the bad hombres out, certainly. But why not just, why not just really up our quotas and, you know, say, hey, if you're you know, and be a little less rigorous on what qualifies for asylum and saying, hey, if you're having a rough time, sure, we can let you in. Come on in. Things are great in the United States. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I Well, you know, at least we know we have that recorded, you know, for the public to hear, so, <laughs> you know, a, a rare moment in Mike history. But uh, yeah, I I, I don't know, because I, I guess I, I think about the, again, I go back to the question of like, well, what then? <laughs> then what? You know, I if we let more people in, you know, I, I agree with the logic, you know, obviously, you know, we can give these people jobs, we can turn their lives around and, you know, down the road, it could be better for the country. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people on the right would point to, you know, would we be letting more of these bad hombres in? You know, I guess that's not my argument. My argument would be, how are we going to pay for it all? Logistically, how are we going to handle it? I feel like I always, almost always go back to the financial argument. And, you know, obviously I have children and I wonder about how, you know, this, this bloated economy and bloated, you know, resource, you know, lack of resources and, um, you know, how, how are they going to be able to pay for it? I don't know that I could you know turn that over but i think that 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 question and that policy is is worth talking about how can we effectively let people in but ensure that that these are people that are contributing you know to american society and and i think uh, that's a place we can all come together yeah no, yeah, no. I, I think that that's a good place for us actually on a place we can all come together i know we're kind of running a little long so maybe that's a place we can stop for uh today but yes. uh, if you are a supporter we should let you know that as soon as Chris and I are done recording this show, we are going to go right into our bonus show. And I think, Chris and Rhett, we're going to talk about uh, uh, Mayor Pete, who I am increasingly taken with, actually, uh, and uh, the rest of the 2020 field where we see things. And uh, as well as maybe get into uh, President Trump kind of with uh, that dispute with Ilan Omar and the 9-11 video thing and all that. I have plenty to say about that. So. If you're a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And if you're not yet a supporter, you can become one by going to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politicsguys, or just go to politicsguys.com slash support. And if you want to get in touch with us, like, for instance, if you want to let me know when the best time would be for that live broadcast on CastBox, well, you can just reach us at uh, mail at politicsguys.com or reach me personally at mike at politicsguys.com. Then there's our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. There's all kinds of stuff there going on throughout the week. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, that would be really great. It helps us out a lot, as does, you know, letting other people know about us. We would appreciate that. And leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or wherever your podcast app is, that helps too. 
The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Chris Matheny and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope to join us.